0: These kids nowadays, like Chuck, eh? They just don't get anything.
1: Yeah, my attention's been. Oh, wait, wait a minute. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode one hundred and ten of the Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Reuven Lerner. Hi, everyone. Curtis McHale. G'day. Jeff Schoolcraft. What's up? Mandy Moore. Hello. <laughs> I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. We're going to talk about getting started with freelancing. We haven't talked about this in a while, and Reuven got a question about it. So, uh, Reuven, do you want to fill us in a little bit about what they were asking about?
2: Sure. So someone contacted me about uh, the fact that I'm a U.S. citizen doing consulting abroad outside the U.S., and we can talk about that on another show. And then after a bit of an exchange, he said, oh, and by the way, uh, in addition to thinking about moving abroad and uh, doing consulting... I would be starting consulting, and how do I break into it, since a lot of your shows have to do with experienced people, and I want to know, you know, how do I start off? What are my first steps?
1: Interesting. So do we want to talk about experience level needed, or do we want to just go directly at uh, how, how do you get started
2: freelancing? Well, is there a particular experience level you need? I'm not convinced that's the case.
0: Yeah, I'm not so much either. Well, you need to be able to turn on your computer, though, right? There's a very Whoa. low
1: baseline. <laughs> I was gonna that's, say, does that count? There, Curtis.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I went from being a waitress to a freelancer just like that, so it's pretty easy.
1: Yeah, all you have to do is put up a sign, right? I'm a freelancer. <laughs> I declare to be a freelancer. Not quite.
3: Nah. Mm. Uh, you can, but you can, you, but that's you not can try that.
1: Well, right, right. So you quit your job. No. It's... Well,
3: go part time first. Do half and yeah. half.
1: I got laid off. I mean that's that's more or less how I got going. I told my wife I was going freelance and she freaked out. It's definitely an interesting thing. I I don't know that you have to be an expert in order to be a freelancer. I definitely agree with you guys. I I kind of want to expound on that a little bit. If you can solve the customer's problem, then why the heck if not? If you can
0: provide value, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, you're not going to be charging what the higher end guys are, but you can still live on what, you know, what you're charging. If you can't, then you probably oughtn't do it.
2: Right. Well, I think, I mean, freelancing is just uh, like a technical legal definition. It means you're in business for yourself. And obviously, a lot of things come with that. But you can be a freelancer and work at the same sort of job or even the same job as you were as a full time employee, 40 hours a week. Uh, if you really want to. And there are definitely people who do that for a variety of reasons. But freelancer can also mean something a little higher level or a lot higher level, where you come in and you're not just another body doing software development or some other task, but you're giving them, as Chris said, additional value. You're really helping their business push ahead. And that's, I think, what we all aim to do more of, uh, both because I find it more interesting, and quite frankly, it also pays better.
0: Yeah, when you're just starting, it's hard to make that transition though, right? Like, I know when I just started, I was simply putting up websites for people. I was solving the problem that they didn't have a website and now they had one. There was no deeper business discussion like I do now, right? Where I talk about, oh, and, you know, we can save this much employee time and we can save all these other things. So when you're starting out, it's hard to even get to that next step because you're still learning how to do the technical aspects of your job.
2: Right. Because freelancing is both doing, again, if you're in the technical industry, you know, you're you're doing the technical stuff. So you're doing development, system administration, that sort of stuff. Plus, you're learning how to run your own business. Uh, and you need to do both of them well in order to succeed. And so I can easily imagine it's it's easier, I guess, just by definition, to continue doing what you were doing professionally, but on a freelancing basis, learn the ropes on the business side, and then slowly but surely crank up your experience level and the value you offer on the on the technical side as well. Yeah, I think that's the hardest thing, or the hardest type of
0: person is one who's, a say, a technician who can really dig deep into the... You know, we normally talk to coders to the code or to the design and to move from a technician to step back and be a manager or an entrepreneur and really to step back to running the businesses, the hardest part, even at a one like at a one person shop level. Right. Not even talking about looking at employees or looking at long term vision, but being able to step out of going into mole mode where you don't talk to the client for five days and say, what do you mean you're annoyed because you haven't heard from me? I was working. Not that they have any idea that you were.
1: What did you call that? Mole mode? Mole mode.
0: Mole mode. That would be Von Glitchka, who's an illustrator that I started using that years ago
2: for. I like that term a lot. And I definitely made mistakes like that. Uh, I mean, I still make it on occasion, but way, way less than when I first started off. I mean, I remember I had a client uh, within my first year or two of starting off where I thought everything was just going great. Uh, And I spoke to him after about a month or two. And after putting up the website and all the application was up, and I said, so everything's great, right? And he said, what do you mean great? We're incredibly upset with you. And I was confused by this. And he said, you can't just set up the software and expect me to know what to do. You have to call me. You have to contact me. And since then, I've been sure to contact people all the time. And what do you know? It works really well. Yeah, that's part of even my long-term marketing, right? Get in touch with
0: a client a month later. How's the site going? Are you still happy with it? Is there any issues you're having, right? I find 90% of the time for me uh, with WordPress, the issue is very simple. and I can point them to a video tutorial to fix it. But then they it reinitiates the conversation every few months. And Often there's even work later after a couple conversations again.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. What about finding that first client? I I know that uh, in general, a lot of folks say, well, my first client was my last employer. But what if you're not in a position to do that? You know, they laid you off or fired you or, you know, you left terms that weren't the greatest.
3: Not all work online from home deals are scams.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You want to elaborate on that a little bit?
3: I found my first client just because it got outsourced to Indeed.com. It seemed too good to be true. It said virtual assistant. I'm looking for somebody to answer emails and do a couple of secretarial things. And I'm like, that's easy, but it seems too good to be true. But I answered the ad and set up a Skype meeting, and it worked out in my favor. And then from there, I you know, started doing more and more, getting more hours, went from like two hours a week to four or to six. And then he was impressed with my work. So he kind of introduced me into the software developer community and the rest is history.
0: Yeah, for me, when I really decided I wanted to go freelance, I started making 10... 10- Say like cold calls, cold emails, contacts a day. And I kept going until I had 10. For a while, I used uh, Jeff's, I'm forgetting on it, the, the lead email that he sent. That used, funnel. Yeah, that's it. I used that a lot. And I, like, if I didn't find 10 good ones on that, I'd start hitting the job boards. I'd start calling local people. And I didn't love cold calling, but that's what you got to do to get out there, right? So it's it was a lot of work for me to get out there. I did not have a good contact that I could go back to at all.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you, my first uh, freelance gig, I actually went to lunch with a bunch of guys who are local here, and uh, the rumor was going around that one of the companies out here was hiring, and so uh, we all applied, and it turned out what they meant by hiring was that they were looking for a freelancer to help them on one of their projects, and so uh, that worked out, you know, the networking there. Uh, another thing that worked out for me is, and your mileage may vary here, but um, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he said, get in touch with this recruiter that he knew, and the recruiter had a contract gig that he was trying to fill. And so I worked that one for like a year, and that was only 10 hours a week, but it was still something. And then another one came out of the woodwork. I had done a video series on how to build a Twitter clone. Actually, I take it back. I hadn't done it, but it was on my site. And so somebody contacted me about that and said, I want something like that. So, I mean, there are a whole bunch of different ways to do it, if you can build a platform before you go freelance, it's probably a good idea. But if you don't have time or, you know, you just can't take another day at that job, then, you know, do what you got to do. But, you know, I think it's a really good idea to build a network and build a platform before you go so that you have people to go to to ask.
0: Well, on finding a bigger agency, right, or a bigger, like a freelancer like myself who may not take smaller projects and saying, hey, here's some stuff about me. You know, I do know what I'm doing in this field, but I'm not taking like I'm taking smaller projects. And my first year was also helped made by a a company called Brave New Code that does WP Touch Pro. And they were moving into their product full time and they just started sending me a lot of their leads. And I they get Christmas presents every year because I would not have made it or barely have made it my first year without all the leads that they sent me for projects they just weren't taking anymore.
2: I think uh some of you guys are, are, are saying things which are very useful to hear also in that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. I mean, in my case, it was. In my case, I did what I think Chuck said, which is I left a job and that job turned out to be my first uh, freelancing client. And they were great, great client for four years. And I still have good relationships with the people I worked with there. But I think for many people, it's probably smarter and easier to start Ramping it up little by little, if you can, maybe as a part-time thing in addition to your full-time job, to start getting your name out there and just experience it. In general, I think if you can do a few projects just on an hourly basis to get your feet wet um, and slowly but surely get into it, I, I think that can be useful and good. That's certainly where I started. I got to a point where I needed,
0: I had had the savings, my wife and I decided was appropriate, and I had to quit something—quit getting new work or quit my job—and we decided my job, and that's when I really kicked the contacting into overdrive.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
2: Curtis, you say that you were doing cold calls. I I, cold calls and cold emails. I think I'd lasted that many years ago, and I found it somewhere between ineffective and frustrating, maybe even both. So, who did you contact? Was it just people locally in your area, or were you? I looked at the chamber of commerce site locally. Was one of my ones, and I just started a day
0: and went through till I had ten every day. And there's tons in like there's tons in there. When we got into the project, I was like, this was a terrible project, but I learned a lot and I fed my family. So those are both good things, right? They're bad projects, maybe, but I fed my family, which is my top priority. And then I learned a lot about doing it. And it kept me going so that I could take the good projects because I was jumping between good projects that were being referred to me from Brave New Code. And they were quite like, well-paying clients. Even now, well-paying clients. Some have stuck with me through all my rate increases, but it gave me the other fill-in that I needed to actually have a viable business.
2: Have any of you found clients, or or early clients, or even later down the road clients, from user group meetings?
1: I have. Not early on, but I have.
0: See, I would say sort of, because I met the guys at Brave New Code through conferences and stuff, right? And they got to know that I was... The things I didn't know, I knew the right questions to ask, is what they told me, so they felt confident that I could ask the right questions and still answer it, even if I didn't know the answer right off the top of my head.
1: Yeah, a lot of the local businesses here, if they are plugged into the Ruby community, they know who I am. And so I've gotten some business that way where somebody referred or in one case, uh, one of the bigger bookstores that's local here called Deseret Book, they had some work that they needed done. So they just came over and, and that was pretty much that. It you know wasn't a ton of work, but
2: it was good work.
3: So Yeah, I've gotten all my work through referrals.
2: Yeah, referrals can work well. I mean, when I first started off and I was talking, uh, there was this... um graphic design agency that I did a little bit of work for, not a lot. And they got me into a company also where they were doing some work and they needed some programming help. And they started offering to refer me to people and they said, and our fee for doing this is, (laughs) and that's when I said, Oh, I'm really not interested in that. And, you know, years down the road, I'm saying, well, that was probably the right decision. But back then I really didn't have that many clients. So perhaps that would have been a, a reasonable trade off to sort of ramp up faster at that point, I was single. I had the big client in America, uh you know, my former employer, and so I didn't feel the squeeze that I absolutely positively need to take everything that came my way
1: yeah, that's interesting. I'm really interested, and I know this is another email that the same person sent you, but since you're outside the u s does that affect the way that you do things?
2: yeah <laughs> absolutely. So first of all, I have to convince people that yes, I'm in Israel. But I'm actually from the U.S. I grew up there, went to high school and college there. Um, And I really try to emphasize that because people have been burned by doing outsourcing to various countries. And they're just sort of nervous. Uh, I mean, not to paint with too broad a brush, although this will be. But I find that most Americans calling outside the U.S., it's like trying to call the moon. They just have no idea how to do it. And so um, <laughs> telling, <laughs> I mean, even even I love them dearly, but even my parents said at some point, what is that plus before your phone number? Uh, <laughs> and having to, having to explain to them, oh, that's the international area code, uh, or the country code. And people outside the U.S. just sort of know this instinctively. So the fact that I, I then say to them, listen, I have Skype. I have a U.S. phone number that rings on my computer. Now, the number of clients who have actually called me on my U.S. number is zero. Literally zero in the seven or eight years I've had that phone number. But being able to tell them I have – watched this. Everyone who listens to the show is now going to call me, right? But basically, uh, having that phone number definitely reassures them. And so trying to explain to them, yes, I'm American, yes, I know your business norms, yes, I know your language fluently, um, I think helps to calm them down. There are issues with time zones, but usually we get around that by me explaining that I'm just, I, I don't sleep that much and I'm up at all sorts of hours, so it works out okay. And then the big sticking point is how do they pay, where they're always very nervous about that. And for me, for years, the easiest thing has been just stick a dollar check in the mail and send it to me, and I can deal with it on my end. That makes sense.
1: I want to kind of ask some of the common questions that I get from people who are looking at going freelance and just see what your answers are. I mean, I've given a talk on this like three or four times now in the local community. And so I kind of have things that I just say as part of the deal, but I'm kind of curious to see what your take on things are. So, um, one of the questions I get is, isn't, isn't that risky? Isn't, you know, isn't it risky to go out on your own as opposed to have an employer that just takes care of everything for you? One employer means one person fires you and you have no
0: job, right? Typically, clients mean you have lots of, like, one person fires you and you've got three other people
2: still paying you for something. I agree completely. I mean, not necessarily at the beginning when you're starting off freelancing, but now every so often I'll have a client say to me, you know, wouldn't you like to work for me full time? And I think to myself, oh, my God, get a paycheck from just one person. But what happens if it doesn't work out? So I definitely like you know, spreading my bets as it were.
1: I tend to disagree a little bit, but it depends on the industry you're in. And what I mean by that is for most people that I know that do what I do, it's not very hard to find a job. Everybody's looking. You go to the user group meetups and everybody's, hi, I work for such and such and I do such and such there and we're hiring. And the next person stands up, I work for another company and I do you know, the, so, something similar, and we're hiring. And so for me, it's the risk is that I'm going to have to fall back to a full time job. <laughs> not necessarily that, you know, if somebody fires me, you know, if I had a full time job, you know, I just take a couple days off and then go get another job. I know that's not that way in all industries for all people, but, you know, it, at least in the programming and in the Ruby and Ruby on Rails arenas, you know, there are plenty of, there's plenty of work out there. Yeah, it's
0: the same for me. I think it's the same in a lot of the web field, like people doing design, and like I have no trouble finding work. Really, I say no to. I have no work when I say no, and usually not because there's not lots of people who want to work with me.
1: Right. And so, I mean, yeah. So that's the risk for me is, oh, well, I'll have to go have a full time job, and I'll lose all of the freedom and flexibility that I have.
3: Yeah, that's pretty much the worst case scenario for me as well. Freedom and flexibility. I go back to waitressing. Yay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I mean I would get paid well in a full time job, so you know, it it really isn't the risk isn't there for me. So the risk for me is risking my you know, my control over my time and my lifestyle and things like that is what I'm what's at risk if I don't find work.
2: Right. I mean every every so often I've thought to myself, oh boy, I'm having a slow period, what am I gonna do? And certainly I've started to take steps to make sure that the slow periods either don't exist or they disappear completely. But almost Always. I would say no, always. When I've had it start to have a slow period and I start to have those worries, uh, I get a call uh, from someone who saw me at a conference, read one of my articles, knew me somehow, just heard about me, and it starts to crank up again, and then I'm overwhelmed with work. So I have to sort of remember that during the downtimes, but it's it's generally true, and it's because I've hedged my bets and have lots of tentacles and lots of different communities and different technologies and people have heard me from me from different places. But again, I'm not sure. I mean, it's it's a little different if you're starting off and you don't have a reputation, you don't have these people who know you, you're just, let's say you're a software developer and you're even an excellent software developer, taking that plunge and saying, I'm going to give up that full-time job and the security, and there is some security in there, a fair amount, and go and start this whole new business practice that can be scary and there is risk involved. So I think, you know, number one, doing it, as we said before, little by little is probably a good idea. And number two, having uh, some cash on the side saved up so that you can get through that initial period is probably a good idea.
3: To me, the most important thing is if you're going to go for it, you have to give 150%. You know, you you can't just half-ass anything. You, you need to go in, give everything 150% and build that solid reputation because people are going to want to work with you. If they hear good things about you and you have a good work ethic and you can communicate with people and you are capable of producing great results... Then you're you're golden
1: yeah that's so true and you know if you if you're kind of dipping your toe in the water I mean there is a big difference between doing it on the side and moonlighting and being in it full-time where it's your you know your sole source of income is uh, working for clients yeah,
4: that's part of it I mean commitment for sure if it's on the side and it's a few hours a week or something it's a whole lot easier to let that slide versus this is whether or not family's going to get fed or not. I mean, if you take Curtis's take on things. And then you're going to be into bigger projects too. I mean, you're not going to want to grab a four-hour-a-week project if that's what well, maybe you do, if it's the only thing that comes along. But, I mean, you're you're going to be looking for bigger things because you have a much bigger pot to fill than just a few things on the side.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm kind of curious about how you, now that you've been doing it for a while, how you find clients. So, is it just people call you up because you've got stuff out there, or uh, is it mostly
2: referrals? It's a combination for me. I mean, I would say about half to two thirds, maybe even more, of my clients reach out to me. And one of the best things I, I've done is speak at conferences. Uh, and I've managed to get myself invited to speak at all sorts of conferences. And what I typically say is, within six months, and yes, it can take up to that time, six months of speaking at a conference, someone will call me and say, hey, I saw you speak at that conference, i really like you to help me out. And it can be a one-day gig, but it can also be an ongoing one. It, It totally depends. So having people contact me is certainly nice and easy, although it's obviously also somewhat unpredictable. So I also, I look every so often, uh, you know, in various places online. And we've got Facebook group for Ruby on Rails in Israel. Sometimes companies are looking for people and for help. Sometimes I look at online, uh, job listings and I'll, I'll contact people. And there I know it's much more of a crapshoot, but when it works, it, it can work very well.
4: It's uh, about the same. I, I think uh, about half my work comes from referrals or the network I have created and. The other part gets filled in by just stuff that I see through looking at way too many things online that seems interesting, and I'll shoot them an email and see what happens.
1: But, yeah, I mean, that's where my
4: stuff comes from.
3: Yeah, I'm 100% referrals, or people have heard of me and my work.
1: I'm kind of in the place where about half of the work just comes to me one way or the other. So, yeah, I spoke at a conference or I did a video online or something like that. And the other half of the work I get is, you know, me going out and actually talking to people and working my network and things like that, working mailing lists, stuff like that, where I'm kind of actively looking for stuff. Or I'll go on the podcast and say, hey, I'm between contracts, and then I have people come and ask me to do work for them.
0: So what mailing lists have been most effective for you, Chuck?
1: The Utah Ruby Users Group has been pretty effective. I'm actually working on a more involved uh, marketing funnel uh where i have my own lists related to the podcasts and other things that i do and working that out so that you know i can i can bring people in to either purchase products or uh work things out so that they'll hire me but yeah you know just being active in communities has really worked out
2: i found unfortunately at least in israel that in many cases when companies are looking for developers um and especially in something like ruby where i don't know my impression is that it's pretty hard to find people, or at least good people. So they'll say, oh, we really, really need a developer. And I'll contact them, and they'll say, oh, well, not a freelancer. Don't be silly. (laughs) (laughs) So so much so that we actually split up. There's a Facebook group for Rails in Israel, and it was split then into two different groups, one for regular developers where people can post job postings, and another one for freelancers, because the freelancers were, I guess, tired of getting this sort of response. I, I, I did not set up the group. I was just told about it and joined it. And I'm not quite sure how these companies then deal with the harsh reality, which is there aren't any Ruby developers to be had. But, I, I mean, I, I've now just got a thick skin on that. And it totally doesn't bother me when someone says we prefer to keep the knowledge in-house, we want internal design uh, developers, uh, we don't want to pay freelance rates. Um, I say, okay, you know, good luck with your project, and if you ever need help, let me know. And sometimes, maybe 20% of the time, they actually contact me six months later and say, you know, we actually could use some more help, or maybe you could train our people or go over what they're doing because we really were not able to find people so easily. And I think to myself, I know. <laughs> I knew that before, but sure.
1: Yeah, I've had that work out that way too, where I'm basically tell them, okay, well, if you need somebody to backfill, you know, until you get somebody in there, let me know. And what usually winds up happening in my case is they have some conference coming up or they've got some other event they want to be ready for, and they still haven't found that person. And so it's some external event for them that triggers them to go, hey, we we just need to get this done. And, you know, our preference for in-house people just isn't working for
2: us. I I should add, by the way, that, I mean, it's really useful to be nice and it's nice to be nice in general, but... I found it to be a very useful business tactic, even when people, or strategy, I guess, even when people are really ridiculous and have all sorts of crazy demands, saying to them, you have crazy demands and you're a jerk to boot will never help because you never know who people are going to talk to. So keep the anger inside and be nicey-nicey to them and wish them luck with their project because you never know what it can lead to in terms of a referral
3: agreed 100%. I have had people contact me and ask me what my rate is, ask me, you know, can I, you know, help them and then they'll be like, "Oh, well, that's a little bit higher than I expected." Which a side note, also don't underestimate yourself because I found out that I was severely undercharging people, like really, really undercharging people, which, you know, do your research. And know what you know, you're capable of and make sure you know what the median income bracket is and then stick to that because 10 to 1, those people will come back to you because they'll realize, well, I, I do need this person and so that's how you build your reputation.
1: We kind of moved into rates um, and I definitely agree. My initial rate when I went freelance, um, my first client, I charged $65 an hour on my first gig in Rails. And I wound up in this group of guys, Uh, Jeff was in there, um, Eric was in there, a few other folks were in there, and I started chatting with them, and they're, you know, I'm all excited, I got my first gig, and uh, they're like, well, what are you charging? And I kind of hemmed and hawed, and then told them what I was charging, and they were like, dude, (laughs) you, you have to charge more. And yeah, my next gig was almost double that, because I realized that the value was there. So definitely figure that out, you know? figure out where you need to be. What I tell people usually is first off, go talk to other freelancers who do what you do. If you can find them and find out what they're charging. I mean, even if you don't feel like you're at their level or whatever, that at least gives you a starting point and you can kind of adjust from there. And then the other peak thing I tell them, and I think it was freelance, which used to have like a rate calculator. I haven't been able to find it recently. Um, no, it's gone. So I kind of did my own napkin math. I'm going to, uh, put it in the show notes. But basically, if you're accustomed to getting $6,000 a month and you figure in self-employment tax, which in the U.S. is 15.3%, uh, that gets you just above $7,000. My health insurance is $900 a month, so that gets you almost to $8,000. Uh, figure in income tax, which is going to be somewhere between probably 10 to 15% and, uh, 25 to 30% in the U.S. Um, so I just uh, you know, was a little conservative there and said 20%. That gets you to almost $10,000 a month. Um, if you want to take four weeks off during the year, then you've got to make that up during uh, every month that you work. And so uh, that adds another $800 a month. And then if you divide that by four to get per week, and then you figure out that you're going to work about 30 hours per week, it comes out to about 90 bucks an hour. And I ran through that kind of fast. If you want to look at the math, you can just go look at the uh show notes. But basically, so if you want to maintain a lifestyle where you were bringing home $6,000 a month, you've got to turn around and charge $90 an hour. So, you know, you can do your own back of the napkin math to figure out how much you need to make, but you got to charge enough to live on. <laughs> and if you're making the transition, you know, going to a lower effective yearly salary is, is sometimes kind of hard. So I just want to throw that out there, you know, talk to somebody and find out what it costs to be freelance.
4: I was going to say even an easier but probably less accurate sort of where the hell should I be money wise is take the annual salary you think you'd get at a nine to five job and divide it by a thousand and that's close to an hourly. So if you're targeting like a $75,000 an hour job, it's about $75 an hour rate when you go through all the other math. I mean it's not perfect but it's close.
1: I think that's reasonably close to uh where this other math came out and it's 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 really interesting to figure out that your employers probably paying a lot of that that you don't even think about on top of your salary. Oh yeah, for sure.
2: My my first job, I guess both when I was in college and then out of college was at HP uh in the US and they put us through an orientation for a few days. And part of that was learning the HP way, which back I guess 50, 60 years ago was this new way of thinking of the relationship between employers and the employee you know the company and the community. And it was it was pretty sort of liberal and positive in many ways for its time. And so they went through the HP way and the first part of it was profit. And what they said there, I mean I forgot everything else that I did in that orientation, but they made the point that it seems really crass to have profit as the first point of this philosophy for how the business is going to run. But if you don't profit, everything else goes out the window. And that has stuck with me because as I've been running my business for many years, and as I think about, well, can I really go down in price? Can I do this? Can I do that? At the end of the day, I have to make sure I'm making a profit so that I can, you know, as Chris said, feed my family and so that I can push my business forward. So if, if you are nervous about uh, having rates that seem extraordinarily high, right, don't forget that you're now the business and you have to take into account not only taxes and all that other stuff, but the risk, the rates will turn out to be higher than you might have thought as a full-timer, but they'll be seen as pretty reasonable or they should be seen as reasonable by reasonable clients.
1: Yeah, it's so true too. And people expect to pay a little bit more for freelancers. And if you explain to them, most of them should get it if they have employees why they're paying a little bit more as opposed to what they would pay for an employee. And uh, sometimes it works out better in their favor this way, and sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, just understanding that really makes a big difference. And the profit thing is kind of critical, isn't it? So another question I get all the time is I I, I hate selling. (laughs) I'm not a good salesman. Then don't go into business for yourself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that's really probably uh... selling yourself, right? You have. I'm not a you're good a salesperson sales. in anything. Even if you're in a person, your job, you're continually selling yourself that you're a value to the company. So yep. you might not like what you really don't like is the sleazy salesman who knocks on your door and tries to like sneak things by on you on the sly. But you are always selling yourself.
3: But if you do your job that well, then you really don't have to that much because your work speaks for itself.
0: It's still sales, though. Yeah. You're yeah. still showing that you provide value. It's just not that sleazy salesman sales. That's what people don't like. I don't want to be that guy who has to... I don't want to be that person either, so I don't do it. But you're yeah. always proving your value. You're always continuing to sell yourself.
2: Okay. Uh, I don't know if I totally agree with that. I mean, if you're in a full-time job... You're wrong. And if, if, every, if every year you have a, uh, you know, a progress report, and you can sort of slide by. I mean, maybe you don't care if you're going to get the huge bonus or the medium bonus or no bonus. But... If every year they sort of say, okay, well, you know, Higgins, you've you've done an okay job this year, we're keeping you on. I mean, I guess nowadays the job market is a little tougher and you have to prove yourself. But I, I feel like it's a different kettle of fish when I'm working on my own, where I really have to sell myself more. I have to go to people who don't know me at all. And I have to tell them, not only is it worth continuing to work with me, but it's worth taking me on at, at the beginning.
1: Yeah, I have to uh, I have to come down a little bit closer to what uh, Reuben's saying here. If you're getting referrals, and that's where most or all of your business is coming from, then yeah, by all means, I mean, your your sales pitch is your client going to a potential client and saying, hey, you know, great work, you know, done by this person, go hire them. But in my experience, I don't get an, a steady enough stream of referrals to actually count on that. So while that is an important part of the sales process, I do have to go and convince people that I'm worth picking up in the first place. And when you do that, I had a friend and former coworker, he he lived over by me, and then they moved. But anyway, um, I worked with him as well, and uh, I was talking to him about freelance, and, and he was saying that he really wanted to try it, but that he couldn't sell. And I started talking to him because he works for a consulting firm in Salt Lake City. And I was like, well, how often do you have to go out and make proposals to uh, the client and stuff like that, you know, convince them to go in a certain direction, to use certain frameworks or tools? and uh he's like oh i do that all the time and i was like well that's selling the difference is is that you know when you're selling as a freelancer eventually you come around to talking about money you're putting a a number on it and he's like well i guess so i just don't know if i'm comfortable with it and i just looked at him and i was like well is it worth paying for and he's like well yeah and i said then why would you be embarrassed to put a number on it and no,
2: pe- people are super scared of talking about money. You know, Again, if yeah. you're working full-time somewhere, it, it, it's you know, a classic thing that people are nervous to go to their bosses and ask for, ask for a raise, or they'll just sort of wait around for the annual review and see what they get. I had a guy who was possibly going to work for me about six months ago, and it didn't work out in part because um, I, I did what I do with all people who work for me, and I'm very transparent, and I show them the, pro- uh, the proposals I'm going to send to clients. So I showed them the proposal, and I said, I'm going to send this to the client in the morning. And he emailed me back. He said, no, 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 you can't send that. I said, why? He said, because you mentioned money in there. And you can't mention money in a proposal. People don't like talking about money. That that make, gives them a really bad feeling. I explained to him that actually, it's sort of expected when I send a proposal to a client, it'll say how much he's going to have to pay. And otherwise, he's going to wonder why I'm wasting his time. Uh, and over time, it's taken me a long time to sort of get, or took me a long time to sort of get over the inhibitions of saying to people, this is what I do and this is how much I charge and it's worth it. But now I'm totally comfortable with it, but I definitely re- remember having you know, funny feelings about the beginning.
1: Well, and how how often do you have a client or potential client come to you and, and ask you, you start talking about what they need. If you're a good salesperson, you're usually redirecting to them to what they need before they ask you how much it costs. But if there's any kind of lull, one of the first two questions that comes up is how much is this going to cost?
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah.
0: I just did that before this call with a client, and I usually I say like, okay, well, what number sounds expensive? Like, if we say nine grand, is that going to be expensive? Is fifteen expensive? And they said, well, 15 would be kind of near the top of what we would think would even be reasonable. Okay, that's fine, right? That gets us a ballpark of what kind of field we're playing in, anyways, right? If they said, well, I think you know, nine's really expensive. I did that with another person. It's three, six, nine. They're like, well, three thousand's really expensive. I was like, okay, well, here's your expectations. Then <laughs> this yeah. is what you can do for th- for three thousand is expensive.
3: Now, when you're having the money talk, do you guys communicate with that like an email or do you set up like face to face, AKA Skype meetings or whatever? Because I think that tends to make a difference on how you can actually sell somebody on the rate. I prefer setting up a quick, you know, Skype 30 minute call and they get to see me, I get to see them, and it's kind of like even though they can be in California and I can be in Pennsylvania, establishing that kind of rapport.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely, I, I try very hard to avoid putting rates in email because mm. if I can talk to them on the phone or Skype or even better in person, I just a gut feeling is it's probably twice, maybe three times as likely to succeed. Um, if I just send an email, they're going to say, "Eh, well, you know, you're very expensive. Thanks, but no thanks." But if I talk to them, either I can convince them that the value is worthwhile, or we can often find something that's different than what they originally intended. So there's this. Um, web designer here in Moldin where I live in Israel who contacted me a while ago to do some web programming and she, you know, like I like to say, nearly fell off her chair when I heard what I could charge. She said, oh, well, I have a programmer who costs way less than that. And But we talked for a while and we talked about what I could do and so now I'm probably going to be giving her, her and her employees some lessons on how the web works and web technologies so that they can do some of the programming themselves, the basic stuff. Um, so there's something where we found something that was mutually good where I can charge the rate I want and they can get what they need and neither of us needs to feel like we're ripping the other one off.
1: I want to jump in here too and just point out that uh, generally I try and schedule people for calls and it's not because I feel like uh it goes better when I have a call Skype or phone. The difference really is is that I get to talk to them and I can really I understand better what they want. And so then I can cater better to what they need and I can say, okay, I can give you this and this and this and this and this. I'm capable of providing all of these solutions for all of these different things that you want. And, you know, there's just a better understanding of things. And then when I come to them and I say, this is what it's going to cost, then it's not this, oh my goodness, you put a big number on it, but it's, uh, okay, well, you know, you, by then they want to work with me and it's, and, you know, that, that's helpful, but for me, I understand whether or not I can help them out. And that high, uh, bandwidth communication is really important. And so then if I do have to come and sit down and do an estimate or something, I'll usually say, Hey, can I call you in a couple of days and we'll talk over the estimate? But then I can go in and I can say, you know, so here are all the things that, that I heard you say that you wanted. And, uh, you know, and then I can put a price tag on each of them, or I can talk through what the value is for each of those things. You know, in my opinion, I don't think you're going to need this, but if you do, tell me why so that we can work this out. And in a lot of cases, not only do we wind up working on stuff together, but the other thing is is that in a lot of cases, um, I'll start explaining to them why they don't need particular things in there, and the estimate will drop by a fair percentage, and so they can actually afford me over the course of the entire project even though the overall number that was initially on the estimate was something that was beyond what they were willing to spend and so it it really comes down to communication just from the get-go and uh, that's what pays off for me that's where it goes okay i get what you need you get what i need and we have found a way to make it work and we know that we understand each other
0: Yeah, today, before we even started, like before we even talked pricing ranges, we talked about like how they were going to measure success, what type of success are we looking for? We're saving employee time, right? We're looking for getting people out of support by doing the one feature. I have a whole list of questions that I want to answer for each project. Like, why are we doing it? What's the problem? How are we going to measure the success? Is it valuable? Or is it just a pet project of like a manager? And then even for myself internally, are they actually going to see a return on investment? Because there's been a few where that looks cool, but the return on investment is so small that it's just not worth doing it because I cost too much, right? And just tell them up front, I'm sorry, this isn't going to work.
2: Yeah, and I, I, I think, I, I mean, my impression also is that potential clients are likely to become actual clients and even long-term clients. I mean, it's generally good to be honest and upfront with them. But I think that it's refreshing for them to hear not, oh, yes, I will do absolutely everything you want. But, you know what? A and B and C are great, and we can do those. And D, E and F, not such good ideas, or let's do a second stage, or it could be expensive. And they realize that it's a matter of weighing the advantages and disadvantages and not just jumping in and doing everything.
0: Yeah, I find out lots of times they, when you ask, how are we going to measure success? They're just like, I don't know. So they don't even know what it's worth, right? Uh-huh. They have no <laughs> yeah. idea internally what this new thing they want to build is even worth. They have no It just sounded cool. Right? I've seen that with even current clients saying, hey, should we switch everything over to Node from WordPress? I'm like, uh, is it going to make you more money? I don't know. It's just <laughs> it's the cool thing. Well, great. <laughs> is it right. going to make you more money? I and mean, if you can cool your way it's going Come to on, make true. you more money, great.
1: I get that on uh, Ruby on Rails versus Node as well. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's definitely an interesting discussion to have. But, uh, you know, at the same time, it's, yeah, what, what's the real value for you? Why, why would I do this? And so you talk about the trade-offs. Usually there are trade-offs, and usually they'll care about one thing more than another, and then you can make those decisions. And that'll also help you solidify that why. Um, I think it's agile or lean. I think it's lean that has the five whys. So you ask why five times to get to the root of what they
2: want.
0: Yeah, I know today when I started asking my questions, they told me I was, they're talking to a few contracts and like, you're the first contractor who's actually asked us about that. They had answers to it all. and They had lots of good metrics they could measure mm-hmm. and they refined a few while we talked, but they said no one else had asked them yet.
2: Right, and that's, that's super important. I mean, you want to, when, when you talk to a potential client, you want to show that you're interested in their business and you want to have questions and you want to have done your homework. So showing up to a potential client, not having learned anything about who they are, what they do, or the people involved is going to really, Cause problems. But if you can show interest and show that you actually care about them and you've done your homework, I, I think can be a big, big plus. They appreciate that.
3: Definitely. Yeah. I know they're
0: even suggesting other things, right? So I talked about adding to what the, we're going to do and like coming up with a better quoting system to save more time of their salespeople so that they can make more sales. And like, we actually have that on like our phase two list. We weren't going to talk about it to anyone yet until we had decided if anyone was good. And it's like, oh, and I came with like, here's like six things you should look at for that too. And they, so they took down, like, the links I sent them to go look at more features for it as well.
1: Yep. And they start to feel like you're more of a collaborator and less of just a, you know, we give you money and you stamp code.
0: Yeah, I think when I was starting, I was afraid of even talking personally, right? I mean, I, we talked about our dogs today, too, because I heard a dog in the background and they're a dog-friendly workplace. So <laughs> I was afraid about that not looking professional, and now I just decided I don't care. So occasionally I hear my kid crying outside, and I'll just be like, yeah, I work at home.
1: So I've got a pick around this and I'll I, I guess I'll save it, but I have another question that I get asked a lot, and that is do I need a business entity? Like an LLC or an S Corp?
3: Not no. at first. Ooh,
2: right. It depends. <laughs> if you're living in the US, then probably not. If you're not, it can have very serious consequences. For instance, this is one of the first things I discovered when I decided to when I was moving to Israel and freelancing. So as a U.S. citizen, I owe U.S. taxes no matter where I live in the world. So Israel and the U.S. Have a, have a tax treaty, meaning any income tax I pay to Israel is counted as if I paid income tax to the U.S. and vice versa. Uh, the thing is, this is not true for Social Security. So if I were just a freelancer here in Israel and I were getting income into my personal account, I would have to pay both sides of Social Security in the U.S. But because I set up a business you know, a corporation, and I get a salary from the corporation, so I don't have to do that. So these are the sorts of little things that when you move abroad can can cause trouble, and you just, you know, need, don't need to worry about it otherwise.
0: Yeah, for me, I, I, we don't have LLCs in Canada, but we, like, I'm a sole proprietor, and I just have a registered business in Canada. So I have, like, a little business license pink piece of paper this year that sits on my shelf <laughs> no one ever looks at but me.
3: I just got mine in the mail yesterday and I, I just got an 8 by 10 frame this morning.
1: <laughs> your business license or your Yeah, I never even find it. My LLC. My, mine, ever. my it LLC. Just sits my tape <laughs> Mandy LLC. Awesome.
3: No. Dev reps, dev reps.
1: Yeah. I know in Canada, uh,
0: when I talk to my accountant, if you're going to make over 150000 like continually and not just one high year you make that, then it's worth incorporating. So I will do that this year because um, then I can save a bunch of taxes. And especially if. I know a lot of businesses. He says, number one, they don't save their taxes so that I can't pay the government properly into the, the year. But they take all the money back out of the business. And since I don't ever do that, then I can have money left in the business taxed at a significantly lower rate than I would be taxed personally because I'll be pushing, I'll be pushing forty three percent with my income for next year probably as opposed to nineteen for corporate taxes.
3: Yeah. If there's one thing that I can really emphasize to people who are going to start freelancing, it is take a percentage of every invoice and put that in a separate bank account because that is your tax money. I almost made that mistake because I'm like, "Oh, I got all this money so I can just go spend it." Nope. You people forget. You have to pay your taxes.
0: Yeah. I did yeah. that one year and owed the CRA, which is like the IRS, $9,000. This year I well, the last few years I've saved plenty extra. So I get my tax bill and I was like, sweet, I have $10,000 I don't have to send the government. That is now yeah, tax, my bad. Yeah, that's account. what
3: happened to me. And I was very, very, very happy about that.
0: Yep. I know talking Where's to that? my accountant who I've had for 10 years, though, he always laughs. And he's like, you're like the only person that ever tells me that. All of my other small businesses that <laughs> I work with, they always go, what? I owe the government how much? And they've like taken everything and spent it all year. I was like, really? Like, yeah, that's big, just my tax savings that I have extra. Plus, I have savings savings.
3: Big mistake.
1: Yeah, one, one thing that I want to point out uh, with this is, so my dad, my dad's a dentist, which means that he has a small business here in the U.S. I, I guess you can be an employee and dentist. Anyway, but he's he's a, he's like his own office dentist, and uh, he runs his business as a DBA, which is doing business as, which means uh, that he's, he's personally liable if something happens, though he's renting the space so the, that the space has uh, insurance that way and he carries malpractice insurance, which he's never had to use to cover him that way. So certain professionals have different degrees of risk that way. But if you have an LLC and somebody comes after you for something you did or didn't do, it is kind of nice to have that uh, liability stop at the business. Uh, one other thing that I want to point out is that uh, related to this is that you need a separate bank account for your business. Uh-huh. And the reason is is because, A, it's easier to track expenses to the business that way as opposed to running it all out of your personal account. And it also makes it easier for your accounting software to figure a lot of that stuff out. So okay. yeah, know, If out. you mix
0: your money, too, then you can cross-contaminate your liability if you mix yes. your money. So you got to be careful about that as well. Yeah, but if you're to a sole proprietor, a sole you've done proprietor that anyway. It's very
2: similar to an LLC, oh, I really? understand. So I, I have horror stories on both of those fronts. Number one, I would say, and maybe this is just a a paranoid Israel thing, but not only should you have a separate bank account from your business, but you should have it in a separate bank. I definitely, I had both accounts, my company account and my personal account in the same bank in the same branch here in Israel. And they would basically see them as, oh, this is just sort of two accounts that Reuven owns. And so if I went into overdraft in one of them, then they'd be like, oh, that's fine because you've got the other one. Um, and when I would negotiate with them over things, over getting loans or whatever, they would look at both of them together. And having them in separate banks, with separate bankers where there's this very clear wall between them, it has been very helpful and very useful giving me a lot of peace of mind. Uh, this is something that a business manager of mine years ago insisted on, and she was 100% right. Um, yeah, I wonder the other if they registered
0: if mine as a business, like with my business account. Although in Canada, legally, as a sole proprietor, I can register it under my own name, and that's still fine. But it's with the same bank, but registered as... My business's name, account, not
2: my name. Oh, it was registered in my business as well, but they didn't care. Uh, It seems shady (laughs) to me. (laughs)
3: Yeah, I don't have that problem. He's got a business account account and a personal.
4: Let's just overdraft both of them, whatever.
1: That just seems weird. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not even going to get into my bank. I hate those people.
4: (laughs) I hate I'm All banks suck. PNC sucks less for me than most other ones. But yeah, I've had a ton of bank horror stories too.
3: I just keep all my money under my mattress.
4: There you go. What (laughs) was your address
3: again? In
2: in bitcoins, in bitcoins under the mattress.
3: In in bitcoins too.
2: Virtual mattress. the The other horror story I had was, at least in Israel, when you sign up for a corporate account. And yes, I've got a corporation, limited liability, and all that other stuff. So one of the many forms I had to sign said that Yes, it's a corporate account, and if the corporation owes money and cannot pay from the account, I, as the owner of the company, am personally liable. Oh, oh geez. <laughs> so what's the point, right? That, right. So basically, yeah, basically the, the bank, and this is why banks are so profitable, right? Like, they don't want to be left holding the bag. So if my company declares bankruptcy, they'll be like, that's fine. Reuben's good for it, right? He's got a house we can force him to sell. Now, I will say that my, my company bank, I, I, I mean, they're a big bank in Israel, Bank Me, and they're, I must say the people who work there are super, super nice and helpful to me. And it's been a shocker. A, because I've never experienced that sort of service anywhere. And B, Israeli banks are especially known for having terrible service. But for the times when I've needed them, um, it's been great to be able to call them on the phone. They know who I am. And so, Banking, being being the big fish in a small pond, or like a well known customer in a small bank branch, I found has been very very helpful and useful.
1: So one thing that I want to just point out with this, as far as should I have a business entity, is none of us are attorneys, none of us are accountants. And you should go talk to one and make sure you understand what you you know, what it gained you and what some of the hoops you're gonna have to jump through are. Because it varies from state to state and from country to country, and there's just not a good way for us to answer that. We're just talking about our experience and some of the things that we have gotten from or suffered through yeah. for, for having us set up the way we, we do it.
4: But if it's so don't do the podcast. Yeah, but if you're in the U.S. and it's not like December, then don't let this stop you from freelancing. Yeah, You can figure that stuff out.
1: Oh, absolutely. But I just want to point out, go talk to an accountant. Go talk to an attorney. The talk that I gave at Utah Code Camp, I have two slides and one says, do I need an accountant or an attorney? And then the next slide says yes, and then I just move right along. Because
0: yeah, just last week, my accountant saved me three thousand dollars in taxes because I can income split with my wife because she does do stuff in the business and doesn't work otherwise. So it was yep. totally worth my fees. <laughs> the
2: fees, right? And 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 they'll not an accountant and or attorney will not, especially an accountant will not only know how to structure things for your tax benefits, but they keep up on the laws having to do with this. And the laws are constantly changing. Um, and there's there's just no way, <laughs> no way that you want to or that you can keep up with it yourself. I mean, similarly, like what Curtis said, there was just some ruling in Israel in the last six months, eight months about when spouses uh, both work for the same company and how the taxes work and had a major impact on us. But I never would have known about it except for maybe a headline in the newspaper and what to do about it. Yeah, but
1: they can talk to you about all of the all the things you can write off and how you need to track it and all the games you have to play in order to not pay the government quite as much money. But beyond that, The other thing that I've seen accountants and attorneys really pay off on is if you're looking at investing in something or, you know, buying another business or something like that, or if somebody's looking to buy you out or buy something that you've built or made or, you know, whatever, you know, somebody wants to buy a product that you've built from you, you know, like the intellectual property and stuff, these guys can save you a ton of hassle on that stuff. And if they don't know, if they don't do that kind of thing personally, they know somebody who does and they can either talk to them for you or put you in touch so that you can save yourself a ton of hassle. So if you need any kind of advice about any weird stuff with your business, these are the people you gotta be going to. So you, you want these advisors in your business. It just, it just makes a ton of difference and not just for the tax, uh, savings that you can get by knowing them.
0: Yeah, I've used the same guy for 12 years now, and he's always been good. Some things we've double-checked. with. We have another friend who's an accountant, and we've double-checked with him that we we're getting correct advice, just to, just to double-check, not because we didn't trust him, but other than that, I've got the same guy for 10 years, 12 years. Yep.
1: Any other common things that you guys run across when you talk to people about going freelance?
0: I think one of the ones is they want to talk about their pricing and not a lot about budgeting. They always think they can out-earn what they have. Which is pretty common in general in the world. And I know even from a post I've written, the posts about budgeting see about a tenth of the traffic as the posts about better pricing.
1: Yep. Well, if you make more money and you're not good at budgeting, you're probably just going to wind up spending more money, right?
0: Yeah, you can never out-earn your spending if you have bad spending habits.
1: Interesting. We talked plenty um, about Dave Ramsey a couple of episodes ago. What were you going to say, Ridley?
0: Yeah, if you want to think about what I'm going to say, <laughs> then you should go read his book, and I'll say <laughs> pretty much the same thing
2: predict what Curtis is going to say by channeling Dave Ramsey.
1: So um, I'm, I'm a little bit curious, Mandy, has your experience going freelance or independent or whatever you want to call it, uh, do, does it square up with our experience? I know you've listened to pretty much every episode of the show multiple times.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I learned a lot from this podcast. Like I said, I was fearing talking to an accountant for about a year and They are not scary people, it turns out. They want to help you. But as long as you are taking percentages of invoices and setting that money aside, once you do go see your accountant, you'll be fine. Like I also said, it's all about reputation and respect and just putting your name out there and proving to people that you are somebody that they want to work with. and. Other than that, yeah, everything pretty much squares up.
1: Cool. Well, if your experience is different and you're a freelancer, or if you have any other questions, then by all means, let us know. Um, We still have the user voice set up on the podcast website. We're going to be changing that soon, but for the meantime, I think that's the best way. I also want to uh, point out before we get to the picks that we have a forum you can sign up for if you go to the website. That's freelancershow.com and you can misspell it a couple of different ways because I bought all those domains. Um, If you go to freelancershow.com and click on the forum tab, it'll take you to the place where you can sign up for the forum, and then you can ask all of those questions there too. The forum is a paid forum, but we basically just charge enough to keep the trolls out, and that way we don't have to police it as heavily. In fact, using this system, we haven't had to kick anybody out of any of the forums that we run for our shows. So um, it works out real nice, and uh, it's also a good way to help the show, but... The lowest cost one is what, 10 bucks a year or something? You know, you can, you can get in. You're not paying a lot. And really it is just to create a great place where you can come and contribute and ask your questions. So you can do that. And Reuben pointed out in the back channel that it's a business expense. So yeah, save tax money now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Should we get to the
1: picks? Sure. Uh, Reuben, do you want to start us with picks?
2: Sure thing. So I got three picks. Uh, I guess in the wake of our discussion of starting freelancing and banks and everything. Uh, so the bank in the US that I'm using is Allied Bank, which was set up from the whole GM bankruptcy and so forth. And given that I live outside the US, I need to have a US bank account. I need to be internet accessible. And I found them to be super out of the way. Like I have very simple needs. I just need to deposit money, withdraw money, pay some bills from my US account. Super, super, super easy, and on the very rare occasions when I need to deal with them on the phone, they've been great. Second pick is a book that I just read called 90% of Everything, which is about the shipping industry worldwide and how, well, basically 90% of everything we use came on a ship and that it's ridiculously cheap to ship things. So cheap, in fact, that apparently filleted fish in Scotland is caught in Scotland, shipped to China, filleted there, and shipped back, and it's still cheaper than filleting it in Scotland. Uh, and this uh, reporter basically went and uh spent some time on a ship and with the shipping industry and talks about pirates. Fascinating, fascinating stuff if you want to hear uh, and learn about how stuff has moved around the world. And the third pick is a fun one, I would say for the kids, but really it's for all of us. It's called the uh, Ellico Extreme, or the Extreme Electronics Kit. Some of the uh, older folks like me re- might remember electronics kits from when we were little, where they had these springs and wires, and you would bend the spring back and put the wire into it and connect different parts. So, uh, Elico has figured out that that was really a pain and it tended to break. So, they have these different kits, and the extreme one is the large one, um, but they come together with snaps, snaps like you would have on your clothing. And so you can just snap together the different pieces and light bulbs and LEDs and resistors. Um, and I brought it back from the U.S. when I came back from a trip a few days ago. And my 8-year-old has been working with it nonstop. And he just is totally, totally overjoyed. And we've been doing some of the projects together. So great, great fun. And a good reminder of some of the basic electronics I learned in college, which I never really applied because I'm a software guy. So anyway, those are my picks for this week. Awesome. Mandy, what are your picks?
3: Well... I am officially moving again, um, this time into a house, and I was fortunate enough to find a home that is a dome, and so I did a lot of research on monolithic home design, and it is super, super cool. It looks like a turtle shell, and it's so, so, so cool. Also... Because I'm moving, we're moving out to a very, very, very remote location into the country, wooded area, beautiful, gorgeous, and, but the problem is we have no idea where anything is. So I found this app on my iPhone called Around Me, and it'll tell you the closest grocery store, the closest bar, the closest church it'll tell you all that kind of stuff and it'll take you and and show you the how many miles away it is and so we just uh sat there outside our home and just kind of looked and saw where things would be and so we can sort of start to get our bearings because we're moving about 150 miles away so those are my picks
1: awesome curtis what are your picks I picked one article by my
0: friend Morton. It's called The Value of Time. It's about charging what you're worth and even some formulas about how to charge what you're worth.
1: Jeff, what are your picks? Mine are not very
4: business-friendly this week, but I have two. One is uh, an Alfred workflow for Spotify to search tracks, albums, artists, stop and start. Fast forward, all that stuff. And uh, the other is this site called lavish bootstrap and you pick a photo or upload a photo and it picks out the major colors and can generate a bootstrap theme out of that. So I don't know how useful it is, but it's fun to play with. Those are mine.
1: Cool. I've got three picks. Uh, They're all books. And uh, if you're looking to go freelance, these are books that you should go pick up. The first one is Platform by Michael Hyatt. It basically explains to you how to build a platform using social media, email, uh, you name it. It, it kind of walks through all of that. It's a really terrific book. The next book I'm going to pick is To Sell is Human. If you have any doubts about whether or not you should be a salesperson or you have some qualms about talking to people about you know, how much to, you're going to charge them and stuff like that, To Sell is Human is a terrific book that just kind of walks through, hey, look, this is something that you do naturally anyway. People expect you to act a certain way. And, you know, it's just kind of a natural part of being a person. And then the last one is Eric's book, 30 Days to Become a Freelancer. I don't know that he's plugged it A ton on the show, but it's got a whole bunch of exercises that you can go through to become a freelancer. And so it kind of gets you set up and helps you think about, you know, why do I want to be freelance and, you know, what kind of freelancing should I do and stuff like that. Terrific book. So I'm going to, I'm going to pick those. And finally, just as a a gee whiz, something that I've been um, listening to on Audible, it's called Hatching Twitter. And it's the story about how Twitter kind of came to be what it is now. And it's really interesting all of the different people that were involved in it coming about and the things that they agreed on and the things that they didn't agree on and and how Twitter kind of took on a life of its own and became something beyond what they really kind of envisioned it to be. And uh, anyway, it's it's been a really, really interesting book to listen to. And so uh, I'll pick that one as well. And those are the picks. So we'll wrap up. Go sign up for our forum. And thanks for listening. We'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum.